Gail Jackson from Atlanta, and uh, we're really blessed to have Gail with us this morning. Matter of fact, he almost did not make it. A few months ago, uh, Gail was driving through Atlanta, and uh, he was in a hurry and unfortunately ran a red light. But unbeknownst to Gail, um, this particular red light had had a lot of abuses with people running red lights, so they set up this camera. And it wasn't uh, long after this incident that Gail received a letter in the mail. Uh, it was a fee for a bill for $75. And along with this bill, there was a picture. It had a picture of Gail's car going through the red light, and it clearly indicated his license number. So Gail thought about it a minute, and um, Gail's got a good sense of humor. And so what he decided to do was he took a picture of $75, and he sent it into the police department. <laughs> Well, that worked for a while, except uh, Gail got another letter from the police department, and this time it was a picture of some handcuffs. <laughs> so he got the message and he sent the bill. <laughs> anyway, with that, I'm excited to hear Gail again. This will be my third time hearing him speak, and he's always blessed me, and I'm sure he'll bless you. Gail Jackson. It's good to be with you, and uh, pleased to see all of you around, and looking forward to our session. I do want to straighten out some things. I was with Winston last night. He was quite upset with your presentation, and was uh, told me that it was a total and complete fraud. And I said, what, what is your proof that it was a fraud? He said, at that age, I didn't know how to write. <laughs> And two, I was raised on a farm, and I know exactly how far to plant those chickens. <laughs> so I'm glad to uh, clear that mystery up. It's nice to be back with you. <clears throat> the last few years, it has been the uh, soapbox, I mean the soap opera of Jackson going through things. And I'm pleased to announce to you that everything is really going well in the Jackson household. My health is in very good shape. Uh, unbeknownst to some of you guys, I did have a, a hernia surgery last year. And uh, so I'm not ready quite to announce what my surgery of the year is this year. But I'm glad to have all the medical team in because I am putting it out to bid. <laughs> and the bid is uh, you get to choose a surgery and you tell me how much it will cost. And we'll go from there. But it's really been a, a great year for the Jacksons. And uh, God's been incredibly good to us. And I will not go over the ways that it is, but it has been very, very good. And a verse case was given to me that I want to share with you as to start off that I just want to share back with you concerning the last year's journey and for you to uh, circle in your own uh, scriptural quiet times and to meditate on. And Lee, I think it goes in hand in glove with what you spoke on this morning. It's Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. And this is uh, an observation by David, and I want to tell you it's very true in the Jackson household. You, Lord, are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. Listen to this. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. And guys, it's a very true statement about Gail Jackson, and I wanted to share that with you. Today, I've been asked to speak about rewards, and so let me kind of get us launched off. The theme of the conference is integrity. And last night, I was, uh, when Winston in the first session told what his grand 
uh, child defined integrity, and I don't think I don't think you did that last night, Winston. I think you forgot to do that. But he asked his uh, grandson what it meant, and it says, uh, "Was it the grandson? It was a grandson." And he said, "It's doing what is right in the eyes of God." I said, "Well, that's dadgum good definition." We all agreed in the first group that that was a good definition. A lot of us would say that it's a person who keeps his word. It is a person who is predictable in his consistency because he exercises from his true system, and his true system is God. Now, guys, integrity is a function of code. By that, I mean we all live out of a code system. And guys, all kinds of guys have codes. I was raised in the panhandle of Texas, and we lived by the code of the West. It had its own rules. We knew how it operated. And the mafia has a code. And there's an integrity in the mafia because they know what they're going to do and there's rules by which they operate. And I was thinking about that, that that is true of any integrity. And the integrity is, the quality of your integrity is governed by the quality of your code. Now there's two, um, there's two uh, observations I like to make about the code. And that is that the integrity or the code, the code is only as good as the author of the code. Now, we have with us the Bible. And the Bible has been the basis of our code. And that's what we, Winston, 20 years ago, set about a mission of let's explore the Bible every year and what the implications are with us as people. Now, I've thought a lot about that recently. And recently I was asked to... Uh, help a guy in a Sunday school class, they wanted to speak, they wanted to debate, I guess the word, or argue, or whatever you want to say, uh, the, the reality in the Bible of a woman and their head covering, and the women teaching men. We live in a society of highly educated women, very assertive women, and this has been verses of controversy. I told them I would not do that, but that I would meet with them and discuss the validity of the Scripture. Is the Bible itself true? Now that I'd be willing to discuss. Because, guys, that is the question. Is the Bible true? And therefore, if it is true, what am I going to do about it? It's not how neat I analyze it or how cute I am in my thinking. It is, if it is true, then what should my response be? Now, there's two or three things that will hamper that response. Uh, one of them is you'll get in trouble if you will take the general tenure that says it is not fair. That is one of the disruptive forces in your studying of the Scriptures. Second one is, it is not logical. And third, it is punitive. If you walk upon the Scriptures and allow yourself even venture into that, you have immediately undermined the validity and the quality of the Scriptures. And no longer then is it your Bible. I mean, no longer is it God's Word, it's your Word. So what we must do first in our code is accept that the Bible is the Word of God. And I want you to know today and tomorrow that everybody that's speaking from here goes from the foundational concept that this is an inalterable Word of God. And everything we do comes out of that issue. We're not debating the nuances of, of the validity. It is valid. And we're telling you what we think the Bible teaches. Now, sometimes I've been in numbers of, these, numbers of these things, and they want to argue with me about the content of the application. I say, no, no, you don't understand. That's just what the Bible says. You're not arguing with me. I'm just telling you back what the Bible says. So in all this, you understand, if you're going to have integrity, you must have trust in the code. Secondly, 
if we're going to accept the code, if we're going to stick with it, we must believe two things about the code. One of it, it is in my best interest. And two, there is gain in it if I follow it. Let me review those one more time. For me to accept the code by any standard, if I accept the Bible by any standard, I must believe two things about it. It is in my best interest, and two, there is gain for me to pursue it. Because in any code system, it depends on your willingness to stick with it and your willingness to get the job done. And the only way you'll stick with anything for a long period of time, and this is incredibly true of the Scriptures, if you believe that it is in my best interest, and secondly, that uh, I will gain from that proposition. Now, that is the basis of our discussion today. And so I'm going to take you down a, a, a process of thinking, and I want you to know that uh, this was not mentioned last night, but I know this is true of every speaker. Please interrupt me anytime you like to ask a question. I'll try to interrupt. I'll try to leave spaces where you jump in, but don't feel bad. If you I mean don't don't hold back. If you got a question, raise your mic. Let's get after it and talk about it. If I do not finish, I want to promise you your uh, spiritual walk will not be hampered. You'll still be okay with God if I don't get through. The issue is, do we cover the subjects well enough that it makes sense as we go along? Okay. So let's get started. Chart one. I suggest to you. And this is not only scripturally, but I suggest to you from my life's experience of working for a living and doing things and participating in things, that over the long haul of life, we are motivated by one, by one thing. Not by my thing, but by one thing. Typo. Next one. Ultimately, we are motivated by what we consider as gain. Yes, we are motivated by love. Yes, we are motivated by altruistic things. Yes, we are motivated by other things. So there are other things that push and pull us. I would not argue that case. But in the wash of the day, when I go home at night, when I wake up in the morning, day after day after day, month and years, the issue is I always plant myself where I think I get the most gain. Next chart. We always move in the direction of our hope, and our hope is always focused in what we consider gain. Hope is a primary motivational schema in the scriptures. It says in First Peter, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. I say to you today, do you know the hope that's in you? Do you know the hope scripturally that's in you? Do you know why you're betting your life on God? Lee talked about it this morning in the background of Joseph. Does the Bible promise you gain? And I want to say to you, your hope always moves in the direction of gain. Now, I may be an incredibly corrupt guy, and that is true. And I want you to know that it has always been with me. When I wash all the things away in my life, it always gets down to what I consider as gain. Next chart. Therefore, no matter how much we want to give our life to meaningful things, altruistic efforts, to people we love, to any kind of endeavor, unless we see gain in that endeavor, we will eventually, over the long haul, drift away. Next chart. Ultimately, we hope in some provider of that gain. Because there's always got to be a source behind the gain. My case at one time, it was the IBM Corporation. I bet my cookies. I put all the chips on the table for IBM. I said, I hope for. One, two, three, four. IBM said, got a deal for you. I'll give you those hopes. I said, good. I went in there and, you know, by gollies, they were right. I made good money. I had prestige. 
I was noted in business, etc. Then they said, the good news is because you hoped for that and I satisfied it, now you get to hope in me, IBM, and I got some new rules for you. So anything you hope for ultimately has a source, and that source is what you end up hoping in. Next chart. If we hope in two different providers for our gain, we become double-minded. Double-mindedness in the scriptures is when I have a dual system of hope. I hope in God and I hope in the world. Now, guys, this is not a talk on hope. And that's a great thing to do someday again, Winston, because it's so important and so meaningful. But it all comes from gain, and gain is going to be the key to rewards, and it's the key to why you will have any integrity because it is in your best interest. Everybody knows what double-mindedness does for you. Next chart. If you try to bounce the world's hope and God's hope, you will be unstable in all your ways. That's the prediction in the Scriptures. And guys, I never see it fail. I have never seen that fail. And not only will you become double-minded, but you will eventually abandon God's hope. Because as Jesus said to you, you cannot serve two masters. So if you're going to be a man of integrity, if we're going to play this game this weekend and say we're going to be men of integrity, we're going to walk away from here and be a new man and be God's man in the marketplace. I'm going to say to you, the undercurrent and the root of it is I must believe I have gained in that proposition. Questions or concerns or comments? Disagreements? Are all you guys motivated in a corrupt little way like me? All right? So far, so good. Next chart. What, what, what's clipping the hit edge here? Oh. <laughs> hey, would you stand so we can... Boo. Go ahead. That's all right. These, what I say is so important, I don't want to miss any corner of the chart. <laughs> now, I want to suggest to you that the concept of gain is throughout the entire scriptures. There are a lot more spoken about that than raising a family. A lot more spoken of that than death. There's a lot more spoken about gain and profit and rewards and the concept of that than heaven. It is a prevalent force in the scriptures. And I say to you, and I don't want to raise uh, any kind of hands raised up, but how many times have you heard it talked about? And yet, guys, I want to tell you, it is pervasive in the scriptures. And I'm just going to fly over and just scoop some up when I go by, and I'm going to talk in these five areas. All right? And, uh, Lauren, since you are a man of sin, you're going to get to read. No, the man of sin. The man of sin. He knew who I was saying. He knew who I was saying. There was no, no, no. No, 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 no. So we're going to, I'm going to take these, and what I'd like for you to do is we'll go through each one of these and stop. But please interrupt me as we go through these because I'm going to make some points as we fly through these things. And uh, each one of them builds on itself is the arguments I like to make. And uh, just read Matthew 13, 11 through 13. Uh, what is your version? Uh, it's the New King James Version. Oh, praise God. The guy, the guy may be holy. I'm trying to make up. You're doing, you, you got off to a slow start. You're making ground, though. Go. Okay. He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. 
Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Okay, did you get that? Mark that. He's telling them why he spoke in parables, and what they should be thinking about what he's going to teach them. Did you hear me? I'm going to teach you, he said, I'm going to teach you in parables, and I'm going to give you the first law of rewards. Yes, he gave you the first law. Next chart. Perfecting the image, please wait. I thought the image was perfect when we did it. Aha. Aha. Did you pull that out? Okay. Next chart. This is a rewording of what he said. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Next chart. Two lessons we gain from the scriptures. Those who hear and do, more will be given to them. Now, I will say to you guys, in the scriptures, the word hear has a different meaning than we know in English. In English, hear means I have an audible response. Somebody says something, words resonate, and I said, I've heard. I had teenage children. I know they didn't hear. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And a lot of the scripture, we go, uh-huh. Hear in the scripture means not only to have the audible sensation, but it is to transact on that truth. It's a double thing, hearing and doing. Are you with me? So many times you hear Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, then hear. He's talking about getting off your duff and going and doing what the truth is. So you can come to this conference, we have a wonderful time, but if we've spoken the scriptures to you and you go do nothing, you have passed it over. You missed the target. Secondly, those who hear and do not do, what they have will be taken away from them. Guys, this is a true principle in the scriptures concerning rewards. If you hear and do what God calls you to do, you will be rewarded greatly. If you hear and do not do what God told you, the things he has given will be taken away from you. Sorry. It's my Cajun friend. Yes, sir. Um, do you think when it says will be taken away from him, since uh, I would think that in heaven uh, you're not going to have it in the first place. That the, what he's talking about the temporal things. He'll lose what he has traded, the lack of application for the temporal. He'll lose that. That'll be taken from him. Is that what it's talking about? I think the gifts that were stored up for him, I think the benefit he could have, he will lose. As it says in 1 Corinthians, he will suffer loss. I think it's a direct connection to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15. It's okay, Hank? What he's referencing there is, what does that mean? In 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, which I will not talk about today, speaking on the Berean seat judgment, and I've always, with a crowd like this, I've always got to clear that up. That's not the Beamer seat, that's the Berean. That's the Bema seat. Not the Beamer, the Bema seat. We're in the final judgment for believers. God says, not only will you gain, here, 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 but you will also suffer loss. If you hear and don't do, you suffer loss. And I'm not going to go into that unless you guys want to go over to that chapter, but it's a good one to study. Yes, Lance. Gail, in these verses in Matthew 13, do you think this is a heaven-hell issue, or is this an issue of Christians and what heaven looks like for Christians? Okay. Anytime, and Lance, that's a good question, and anytime you're in the uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it, there's a blur on the temporal versus the eternal. And John is, is much clearer. But all the parables, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now, I may want to debate, is it the kingdom of heaven because he's here? But let me say to you, it is clearly 
has an eternal implication to it. I may debate there's something temporal, but they're talking to a Jew. But clearly all of these are speaking of implications in eternity. Okay, but my, my question is, in eternity, is it eternity in heaven versus hell, or is it an issue of what eternity in heaven looks like for me? Okay. Um, and that's your quota of questions. <laughs> Would you move the mic down the table on it? And that's worth clearing up. <laughs> in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it gets a little bit confusing in there, because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Salvation is by works and not by grace. I'm not trying to be stunning to you, but he's talking to a Jew and he's putting it in an economy he understands. He's always after their performance. Do not get me wrong, Christ teaches grace. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he tends to teach works. But in each one of them, he always puts the add-on, Lance, that it also implies the rewards. Okay? Any other questions? Next one. Hurry. <laughs> 16, 1 through 3. Are you ready, Lauren? Oh, I didn't know. Oh, no, you're on. This is it, bud. One sin, and that's the whole deal. Luke 16, 1 through 13. And this is the parable of the unjust steward. Everybody remember that one? Let's go through it there, Lauren. Okay, moving to Luke. Uh, a, B, C, D, E, F. Right, I got to the L's. Okay, good. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that I am put out of the stewardship that uh, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust a steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Wait a minute, won't you read that again? Everybody, listen to this. Read that again. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least, he is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is a tough reading, because the unjust steward, we want to say, is Jesus commending unethical acts? 
And the only way you go into a scripture, there are many rules in which you do when you interpret it, but clearly you come out, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving us a principle on how we ought to look at our life with reflection towards the eternal. And he's commending the guy that what he had physically, he used in the best possible way to get the most gain. Are you hearing? And Jesus said, it is good to go for gain. Agree or disagree? He says that over and over again. The only argument on the table is not that we should go for gain, but what gain you go for. And that's the big battle. Jesus said, do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break into steel, but store for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth and rust consume nor thieves break into steel. There's no issue you should store up treasures. That is not the question. The question only is, where are you storing them? Next chart. So, Lessons on the gains on this front of Scripture. We must use the things of this world, the opportunities of our day, our skills and gifts, that we may ensure ourselves riches in the eternal. Jesus' message to everyone in this room is not that you should not go what you think is in your best interest, not that you should not focus on your own personal gain, but use what you have and invest wisely towards the eternal and not towards the temporal. God never, we have struggled with that because of the definition of selfishness or self-centeredness. The Bible says those are wrong. But the Bible commends self-interest. Next chart. No, no, I'm sorry. Go back one, please. I'm sorry. He who is faithful in little will also be faithful in much. It is not what you have. It's what you do with what you are given. And we're going to go over that every time. Some men in here are appreciably more gifted than others, and so forth and so on. It has no, no issue about how to the degree of your giftedness. It's what are you doing with your giftedness that counts. God will evaluate how that all comes out. But what are you doing with what God has given you? And this is a very talented group of men in here. You're incredibly well gifted. You're intelligent. You have health. You have influence in the marketplace. You really have a, so many wonderful attributes. And the question is, what in the world are you doing with them? Questions, concerns, comments? Okay, next chart. No servant can serve two masters. And we heard that. Next one. Lesson. Pursuing the gain of the scriptures. We cannot have our affections for God equal to our world affection. Double-mindedness. A problem in this room, clearly, I want to say to you, and I don't know half of you, is double-mindedness. The American male is double-minded. The American male has another great trait. He compartmentalizes his life. Today I'm at a retreat. I'm a man of God. Tomorrow I'm at business. I'm a tough businessman. Next I go home. Now I'm a husband. And none of them look the same. And the reason they don't look the same is there's different motivations at different compartments. And by the way, you don't mind me looking in one compartment, but you don't want me looking at that other compartment. And you clearly don't want your wife to know that what that other compartment looks like. So we begin to, begin to petition off our lives so we can live with the pressures we feel as males. And the problem Jesus said is, don't fight that fight. It's not a fight you need to fight. Pursue only my gain, and all those walls come down, and you can be who you are every day and every place you go. Consistency is everything. 
We cannot have the world first and then God. That's a lose deal, I promise you. If you do that, you might do it for a little while, but eventually you will abandon God. And that is as close to an absolute truth as I, as I can make it. You, if you share, I promise you God will lose. You say, oh, no, no. I said, oh, yes, yes. Because you'll give, it for what I, you'll give up what I can't see for what I can see. That'll happen every day. But the last one is, he speaks of in this, is we can't have God first and all else will be added. Now the Matthew 6.33 verse. <coughs> Questions, concerns, comments? Yes, sir. Yes, Jack. <laughs> oh, Jackie. Hi. Back again. You had made the comment that doing things in your self-interest is all right, but doing things out of selfishness is wrong. How do you know the difference? Jack, there's a very, very thin line between self-interest and selfishness. And here is the good news. You get to judge where that line is. Here is the bad news. You get to explain it to God. <laughs> and guys, each one of us must determine where that line is. But I want to say to you, God, God commends and applauds self-interest. He always condemns selfishness. Selfishness, Jack, has the, when it's totally over in the selfish camp, when you know, let's say, let's say there's a continuum. Somewhere in there you break over from self-interest to selfishness. I'm not talking here. Let's go down to the extreme. Selfishness is when for me to get what I want, I must take from you. That is, now that's selfishness. But self-interest on this other end is, as I pursue this, you benefit, I benefit, win-win, we move ahead. But that can only occur, Jack, in my years in life and in business and making more transactions than I would like to ever believe I ever had to do. The only way that works is if this is true, that God is committed to my best interest. Because otherwise, if that is not true, I must use you and manipulate you to get my best interest met. And I slip over into selfishness. Let me say again, God commits self-interest, he condemns selfishness. For you to say in your Christian walk, I do it just because I love Jesus. God never said one time you're to go that way. That's commented on one time, and the rewards are prevalent through the Scriptures. But we like to go there, and you know why we like to go there? Because in our own pursuit of gain, we've corrupted it so badly, we can't possibly believe that God would have us go for gain, because we always associate gain with corruption. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over for side two. Agree? And yet I want to say to you, scriptures are predominantly driven by gain. Jesus was driven by gain. God's driven by gain. Does everything to his own glory. He unashamedly tells you that. Paul did it for gain. I did it for gain. I came to Christ. I didn't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Gain. I serve God because he said, if you do this, you'll have a better family life. Gain. That's why I did it. I believe it's in my best interest. I don't believe the scriptures are harmful to me. I think they're in my best interest. Questions or concerns? Yes, sir. Uh, the onus is on the works. And that's my I, I really do apologize. I did not hear you. I'm sorry. Uh, the onus is on the works to achieve the gain. My challenge, of course, is to always have that desire 
to do to not be selfish. So the the grace of God's got to come to me to to help me change or to desire to do that which isn't selfish. Okay. And 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 I hear the the emphasis or or, or feel the onus. But I got to be you know, from an honest perspective, it you know. I just don't feel like being unselfish. Yeah, and, and you're probably the only man in this group that's this way. <laughs> well, I know I'm not. And I'm sorry you stand alone. <laughs> so, may, may, may I take a stab at what you're saying? May I take a stab at it? Go for it. The problem most of us face in this room is we do not know God's ways. And we have a patchwork thinking about God. And because I have a patchwork concept of God, therefore I must fill in for the holes where he's letting me down. God said he's the God of provision. He said, I'll take care of you. So when I go out on a business deal, do I ruthlessly destroy everything in case, just in case, God's not a man of his word. Can I do the best I can and leave the results to God? If God said he's the God of provision and he'll meet every one of your needs, let me ask you a question. Do, what, what, is, what is anything in your life that represents that truth? If you embrace that truth, selfishness begins to leave. I serve my wife. I serve her with an agenda. I like the things she brings to me. So I manipulate her. Until I realize that God will meet my needs, and that's not my wife's job. He may use her to meet my needs, but that's his job, not mine. I will manipulate her, right or wrong. Right. Because I will not be denied. Now, my wife's pretty smart, and I'm not very slick, so I don't get much manipulation in. (laughs) But I think you know what I mean. And until I believe God is committed to my best interest, I must always say, yeah, I really trust God, but I've got to create an alternate path just in case I didn't understand correctly. And I'll do it. And guys, that's the first step into double-mindedness. And when I do, I'm now selfish. I'm out of self-interest because I must manipulate. Raising children. I've said to you guys many times before, The people who write books on raising children and how to do it have children under 12 years of age. (laughs) Guys with children over 12 years of age write books on prayer and faith. (laughs) I love my children very dearly. I want them to have the very best. I am scared to death about them. Unless I believe God loves my children as much as I do and God has their best interest at heart and God will take care of them, I will manipulate them. It is your view of God that is the great determinant. So therefore, so therefore, we're not talking about a single event that I've said it so beautifully, from now on you'll never have a problem with it. It is a journey of confidence. Did Abraham trust God as much as he, when he began the journey? Or did he trust him more when he about put Isaiah on the fire? He trusted him more. Why? He walked with God and knew him. Are we together? It's a journey. It's a process. So what you do is you say, God, you say this, I'll put it on the table, I'll bet my cookies on it. And then you begin to move. Because as my friend Walt Henderson taught me a hundred years ago, Faith is risk-taking. And a relationship is risk-taking. 
Yes, sir. Could you make uh, one or two comments on how we can get to know God's ways better? Lance, I don't know that I'm going to do that because I'm really, I'm not doing a very good job of it, but I'm trying to get the rewards done. I think it's a very great subject, and uh, I think it's very, very important to pursue that. And if everybody didn't understand Lance's question, is I understand I want to know God's ways, then how do I do that? It's a journey you ought to commit to, and you ought to get around guys like Winston and other senior men and Mark and men who have journeyed and journeyed and talk to them about how they do that. It is absolutely what you've got to sign your life up for. Now, Winston, I have no idea. I'm losing complete control of this crowd. When am I to be through? I, I don't know the time. I really don't know. I've lost track. When am I to be through? 20 minutes. Okay. Next chart. Now, I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to have him read. Uh, one is because he's kind of slow in his reading. <laughs> and two, we just don't have time. So I'm going to encourage you to go back and read these scriptures and think about what I'm saying. Will you do that for me? Will you do that for me? Will you go back and read these scriptures? Nine, 1916 through 2016. The rich young ruler. We all know the story of the rich young ruler. He confronts Jesus. Jesus confronts him. He says, you can give up everything and follow me. And he says, no. And down at 23 and 27, Jesus then makes the comment when the rich young ruler leaves. He turns to his guys and says, Surely I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and gives the analogy, like a camel through the eye of the needle and stuff. And Peter, who I think is a great honest guy, says, Wow. I said, uh, See what's left. Uh, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? What did he just say? What's in it for me? Now, I want to ask you a question. You don't, it's not here, so you can't. Do you remember? If you remember at all, did Jesus said, shame on you, you shouldn't have asked that question? Did he say, that's a dirty, self-centered type of question to ask me? He said, good deal, Peter. That's a good question. I agree with that. Peter understood the rules of the game. One, he said, what's in it for me? And two, he said to Jesus, I have no other way to go. So he understands no options, and he understands the benefits. He's really a very insightful guy. He blunders a few times, but he's got the thing where it worked out. And Jesus said to him, And everyone who has left houses or brothers and sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. Lance, both benefit and eternity. Both salvation and reward. Typical Matthew, Mark, Luke discussion. He blurs it in there. Next chart. What do we learn? Why did uh, the rich young ruler story stun them? Because, guys, basically we believe pretty people with lots of money are better than unpretty people with less money. That's a true statement. guy with a pretty house has got to be smarter, more wonderful, cleaner, greater, good. I know my wife and I laughed. She said, I thought I was a Christian for a long time because I was an American. And we think that way. Why he was stunned is just like because you and I would be stunned. You mean, you mean the guy is rich and he doesn't have a better angle on heaven than I do? And Jesus said no. Did... Why was Peter asking and did it upset Jesus? We've already been over that. Was Jesus' answer concerning salvation and rewards? We were over that. It's both. And was it good? Was it a good rate of return? Hundredfold. Who are the guys in investment counseling? Admit it. Come on, admit it, Tom. Yeah, the question is, would you take a hundredfold? Right now at the market, you'd take onefold. So would I. That's right. Okay. Let's go on. And so then he gets on the backside of rich young ruler, and he reads, he gives them the parable 
uh, he gives them a parable on the guys that get into heaven. You remember that? He talks about the guys he lets into work in his orchard. And he gets in at 8 a.m., he pays him one denarii. He comes at noon, he pays him one denarii. He pays at five, he just pays him one denarii. They're all upset at the end because they say, look, I worked longer than the guys at the end. Why is that? And he's talking about your entrance into heaven. Next chart. Questions on trade. Was the parable on salvation rewards? It was on salvation. What do we note about gain from verse 16? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called and few are chosen. Guys, what he's saying to you is... Your strategy for interpretation of who is ahead of the race is upside down. He who is the greatest servant is the one that's first. Because he's doing what I'd have him do. But as we said earlier, you can't be a servant unless you believe your needs are being met. Otherwise, servanthood is manipulation. Are we together in it? And he said, the guys who are the servant... The guys that are sitting at the back of the tent. The one that are always looking on ways to make your life a little better. Is the one that will be first. And that is antithetical to everything I was ever taught. And that's why Peter went, and was stunned. Called, he says, those, many are called but few are chosen. Call means to incite, to excite. The word stimulate. Chosen means to be elected. Chosen. Picked out of a crowd. And though I'm not going to speak on predestination, though I'm not going to speak on uh, in, in length on election, I want to say to you it's prevalent throughout the Scriptures. He said, though a lot of guys get excited, only a few are chosen out of the group for eternity. Next chart. So what do we learn? Jesus advises us to store treasures for ourselves in heaven. There is eternal gain available to us by pursuing God's instruction. Okay, two, God is in control of who gets into heaven, chosen. We get to determine the amount of rewards and thus the quality of our eternity. I want to repeat this. God determined who goes to heaven. You get to determine how you live in heaven. But we spend all our time relishing our eternal works and how we got into heaven. But that's already, that's fait accompli. God says you had nothing to do with that. Where you need to spend all your emphasis is... How do I move rewards out of the temple and over into the eternal? Questions, concerns, and comments? I saw a couple of mics go up. Yes. Can we back up a little bit? Um, You said that that many were called, but few were chosen. I'm a little little confused here. Um, Call means to incite, to incite. incite. The word excites a lot of people. Only a few catch it. Can I give you a personal illustration? Is election real? It's all through the scriptures, 9, 10, and 11. God gets to choose who he wants to choose. All right? It's a disturbing concept to us. And I'm not here to speak on election. But I want to tell you my brother and I, that's always the example I use. Raised by the same parents, same loving parents. Good, I had good parents. Raised in a home that was totally nurtured. I mean, it was love and care and everything, every benefit they could bring to us. Healthy, healthy parents. Raised in the church, raised around the Christian community. My mother and dad read the Bible to both of us. I came to Jesus, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. Now i got two or three ways I can look at that. The circumstances destroyed him. There's, his circumstances were good. It is therefore, uh, I am smarter than him. <laughs> but I can't go there. Though it's probably true, I can't go there. 
Are you with me? And so I find the answer in 9 of Romans that God chooses those he'll take to heaven with. Now, I'm not going to go into the discussion at length, and I'll raise it only to emphasize this fact. And by the way, there's nothing wrong going over it. I just don't, this is not why I'm talking today. I bring it for this reason. Salvation is the work of God. You don't, you don't play a part in it. So when you have the chance to evangelize, quit being sweaty palmed. The guy's going to come to heaven with or without you. You don't walk up to a guy and say, I don't know if this has anything to do with you, but have you heard about Jesus? You don't try to determine his election on this side. You determine, you think everybody's elected. Are you with me? But you're not out there trying to beat him into the corral. You're just saying, let me share with you what God's doing in my life. It's the joy of celebration. Of, excuse me, of sharing. It's not, i got to trick you into the kingdom. Great relief. I sleep a lot easier. Some guys are going to hell and it ain't my fault. Are you with me? Well, I, I had sweaty palms about that. But God says, quit worrying about that, Gail. Let me tell you what to worry about. What's that? Are you passing treasures into heaven? Because, Gail, got some news for you. You're going to live with those for eternity. So that's why I bring up election. Quit worrying about that part. If you're elected, which you don't know until you die, well, we're going to guess about that. We'll see we are. What are you doing about what God has given you? Just quit pondering that issue. Questions, concerns, or comments? Next chart. Now, okay, good. I'm not going to read these. This is a great uh, parable. And it's the parable of the talents. There's a parable in Matthew, and there's a parable in Luke. And they are both very similar, and yet they're different. And they're going to tell you something about the reward schema. Because the question you want to ask me is, what do those rewards look like? That's, that's what on every one of your little corrupt hearts. I know that. And the answer is, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. The answer is, we do not know. But the parables suggest things that we can see. And it tells you more rules about what the reward system is. If you're going to be a man of integrity, you must have a code system. And if you have a code system, you must trust the author. And the author must provide gain or you will not pursue it. Okay? So let's see what our author says to us about gain. He said that he took some guys and gave them five talents and the guy came back with ten. And he said, you'll be the ruler over many. Two talents and you had, he gave, came back with four. He said, you're ruler over many. One talent had one talent and he threw him into outer darkness. And not only did he do that, but he gave what the guy had up to the guy with five talents. This is an interesting parable. And it's the only place in the scripture where I see Jesus saying, here's a guy with less goods, and he's the, he's the uh, bad guy in the story. Always the guy with lots of good is the bad guy in the story in Jesus' teaching. This is the only time when a guy has less than the other guys that he is the, the goat of the story. Now, I don't know what that means to you. Just a little observation. What do we learn? Next chart. Notice that it's unequal gifting. And guys in this room, it's unequal gifting. Notice that because they produce, the ones that produce, God said, the WDGAFS stands for, well done, good and faithful servant. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Patted me on the head for your production. 
All right? Unequal gifting, equal pat on the head. The five and two talents apparently received equal compensation, probably merited somewhere on the fact they had modestly the same production. But notice that the guy who had less gifts got just as much as the guy who had many gifts. Guys, it's a flat playing field. Some of you are extremely gifted. Some of you are modestly gifted. Now, the good news to the guys that are extremely gifted, you have a lot of gifts. bad news is you're just more responsible. I've got lots of blessings. Good news, you're more responsible. You're more accountable. I have less gifts. Do, do everything you can with what God's given you. Measure your days wisely. Is this fair that he who has less even loses it? Is he a victim? That's our excuse today. Undoubtedly, God must have taken advantage of him. The answer is no. God's answer is he had his chance. He just blew it. He didn't do anything with it. He didn't so much as just put it in the bank. He hid it. And in this room are men who love Jesus who are doing nothing with their giftedness. And I want to say to you, that is not in your best interest. Principle. It is in how much you are gifted that determines the rewards. It is what you do with what you receive. It's what you do with what you receive. Do you even know what you receive? Do you really know your gifts? Do you know your opportunities? Are you exploiting them to your best advantage? If you're not, you have no chance to be a man of integrity for God. Yes, questions, concerns. Back in the back. Are you the rude boy? I am. Oh, gosh. Does everybody know Tom? This is his son. No, his nephew. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Not quite that close. Um, I had a question about the, the gentleman with the one talent, his response to the master. Could you, could you kind of elaborate on his response? Well, I, let me, I, you understand what he's saying. He says, uh, I understand you're a, a tough master and I was fearful of you. And he never said to him, you should have never been afraid of me. I'm a God of love. He said, you're right in believing that. Yeah, you're right. But if you're afraid of me, why didn't you respond properly? Guys, it is very legitimate to be afraid of God. Now, I'm not going to go into it. It's another subject. But the fear of God is a basic premise in the Scriptures. And we want to push that off. Oh, he's a God of love. Yeah, he's a God of love. He's a good God. But don't take him for granted. Don't take him casually. He's not a casual God. So the guy said, I knew you were a tough master. God said, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I was afraid of him. And he said, mm-hmm, that's good. And so, therefore, I hit it. And he said, wrong response. Yes, sir. Joe, you always scare me when you ask a question. Go easy now. <laughs> okay. Um, you're talking about eternal and temporal rewards. And earlier you talked about... I never about said anything about temporal rewards. Never did okay, I say the anything eternal about temporal. and temporal. You're using the temporal to get to the eternal. In reference to previously when you brought up self-interest and selfishness, as I've thought about those... I've thought of selfishness as only applying in the temporal where there are finite resources, sort of a zero-sum game. And self-interest for sure applies in the eternal, may apply in the temporal, at least as I define it. Is that consistent with what you're saying? I thought he made a very good point. Did everybody hear what he said? Okay, I want you to listen to what he said, because I do agree with that, Joe. Would you just say it again? Keep me from having to say it. Okay. And then if it's wrong, we can get after you. All right. (laughs) Trying to think about self-interest and selfishness. Selfishness, as I've thought about it, only applies in the temporal, where there are finite resources. If, that's right. Finite resources, 
suggest that you can fall into selfishness. Are you with me? That's what he just said. Now go ahead. And self-interest for sure applies in the eternal where there are not finite resources. Infinite resources in heaven. Therefore, every time I go for that, that's just self-interest. Because you know why, Tom? If I get 50 and you get 40, I didn't steal any rewards from you. You can get as many as you can want. There's an infinite tank. I, I'm not selfish. I'm just going for myself. I'm not taking anything from you. I'm not, I'm not competing with you. I'm just trying to do what God wants me to do. Do you see his point? Joe, don't give up yet. You still had something to say. Now, go. Well, the last part was self-interest may apply in the temporal before the cross, before death. Correct. Um, but at least as I define it, it may not. Sort of like Job. Okay, everybody, that's, good. that's a, good, a good delineation. Thank you. You can have the mic one more time. Keep it away from Lance. Move it down. Okay, the principle. It isn't how you are gifted that determines the rewards. It is what you do with what you receive. Next. Then he does it again in Luke. And he calls it minas this time. One mina. He gave out one mina to a whole bunch of guys. One guy that had one came back with ten. One guy that had one came back with five. One guy that had one came back with one. Next chart. And then he did it again. The guy with one who did nothing, he took it away from him. Same story. I was afraid of you. He said, yep, that's good. like that. Then, then I was so afraid of you that I hit it. He said, wrong. Then that was a bad move. Next chart. Equal gifting. Not unequal gifting. Equal gifting. Now he said, by the way, here's an illustration of unequal gifting. I'm going to give you an illustration of equal gifting. All right, are you with me on that? Everybody's got equal gifting. He says, when they came in, he patted them all on the head. Well done and good and faithful servant. If you went out and produced... Thank you. Love you. Good man. Are you, are you with me? Same reception into heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. Ten and five talents received proportional compensation. Now, what that looks like, I do not know, but he hints at it because it's responsibility in eternity. That's what his hint is. You get to play a big role, a bigger role in how I govern eternity. Are we together? He just hints at it. I'm not saying to you there's cities in heaven. I do not know. But he does say, proportional. He who got more back gets a little bit more in heaven. The rewards are clearly distinctive. They are clearly noticed. I mean, you can see that they are true. They are appreciable. And he's going to use them different. Is it fair that he who had less could lose it? Same victim determines fairness. Blah. Not going to happen. What's the principle? It isn't how you are gifted that determines the rewards. It's what you do with what you get. Next chart. What have we learned? We already learned the first three. I went over those. What is four? Different gifting and opportunities. It is a level playing field in our, in our strategy in the world. With finite resources, it is not a level playing field. He who has more gifts gets more. Right? There's a difference between the president and the janitor. Right? That's how, we, that's how we write the scorebook. In heaven, I mean, in our pursuit of the relationship to God, it's a totally level playing field. Because he gives one more gifts, he gives somebody less gifts. And he says, it's up to me to determine how it shakes down. But i got infinite resources, guys. I'll give you all you want. Come get it. You cannot run me out of goodies. Different game. Totally level playing field. It isn't how you are gifted and how long you are gifted. Because different guys have different times in the garden. 
It is neither one of those that determines the rewards. It's what you do with what you receive and why you do it. Questions, concerns, or comments? Yes, sir. Yes, Jonathan. This may be a little bit off from, from where you're going. And I asked Walt this once, and he didn't give me a very satisfactory answer, so I'm hoping Or if he did, you didn't understand it. Probably so. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm hoping you can explain it to me. Um, if in eternity rewards consist to some degree, we obviously don't know what increased responsibility. In the temporal, increased responsibility is a burden. So if I'm looking forward to increased responsibility in eternity, I'm not really sure I want it. So it must work differently. Any comments on that, or, or does it work differently? That question is so easy to answer. I'm going to ask my chauffeur to answer it. Walt? <laughs> Gentlemen, we obviously do not know what that difference is going to look like. What we suggest is a possibility that everything that is unfair in this life will be fair in eternity because, for example, it's not fair that you're smarter than I am. It's not fair that you're more wealthy than I am. It's not fair that you're better looking than I am, and so forth. But the individual, for example, who has an IQ of 180 in this life, vis-a-vis -vis the person who has an IQ of 40 in this life, might find their roles reversed in eternity depending upon the faithfulness to opportunity. So I think may may very well be that all those issues in our lives over which we have no control, in which we say to ourselves, I wish I were a little better coordinated, I wish I were a better tennis player, I wish I were smarter, more coordinated, whatever it is, that God says the degree to which you'll have that will be dependent upon your performance in this life, as he says, not on the basis of what you have, but what you do with what you have. Okay, I want to add one thing to it. Jonathan, the reason I do not, I'm only talking for myself, I do not like added responsibility is because it's a heavier burden with no obvious benefit. In heaven, I don't think that'll ever be a question. Next chart. I was actually stalling for time the whole time. I, I knew he didn't have the answer. Question. Reviewing God's deal for eternity. Okay, this is what we've been talking about. Here's the deal. Do you feel you have a better deal with God or a better deal with the world? Next chart. However you answer that question will determine your capacity and your integrity in serving God. Guys, I can't make it any straighter than that. If you think the world has a better deal, you will abandon God. You'll go to their code system. Walt said in his quiet time around Christmas time, I believe, he said, if you do not believe you're trading up when you accept the responsibilities of God, you will not, go, you will not leave what you're doing. If you don't believe you've got a better deal, if you believe it's a, a, a sacrificial, hard, non-rewarding, just burdensome life to be a man of God, you will abandon it. We're driven to our self-interest, and there's nothing wrong with that. Next chart. You have nothing to do with your salvation, but you have everything to do with how you spend your time in eternity. Make it count. And guys... My message to you is, take this meeting, I'm just going to take this discussion seriously. Winston said last night, search the scriptures to see if what was said was true. And if it is true, if I've told you the truth, if I've interpreted the scriptures truthfully, you are accountable. 
Don't squander it. Don't squander it. You've got a great opportunity to affect yourself and all of the people around you and store up treasures in heaven. In that pursuit, you will be a man of integrity. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you give us a system of benefit and gain. God, awaken me, alert me, kick me out of my lethargy, make me be renewed in my commitment to you over gain. God, there's burdens in this business, and I just know the guys, and we have children, and everything we burden, trying to do the right job responsibly. Let us understand you're on our team, and let us trust you for our life, and let us be about the things you'd have us be about. Do not let the concerns of this world grow up around us and choke us out, but let the gains of eternity motivate us and stimulate us to serve you. Amen.